not overtly doing something yourself that is racist isn't enough because we all function and live within a racist society. So doing nothing, you're perpetuating racism, period. So unless you are actively working against it, you're perpetuating it. So I think we all just need to own up to it and say we are all actively working toward racism um, when we're not actively working against it. Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Culture Changers, the podcast that brings you unconventional wisdom by uncommon people. Together, we are shattering old paradigms to reshape our world and inviting you to make your own mark. As you may know, I've been doing a Black Lives Matter series to really continue learning and sharing Black stories. I've been so touched by my guests' illuminating and sometimes chilling accounts of what life is like as a Black person in America, their vulnerability, their brutal truth. For us, it allows us to begin practicing radical empathy. Today's conversation is with Yandalela Neely Holston. She is a cum laude Duke Law graduate, attorney and partner, and the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Kilpatrick Townsend, which is one of the top 100 law firms in the nation, and has recently penned a searing open letter responding to OK Cafe owner Susan DeRose's stance on Black Lives Matter. OK Cafe is a 50-year-old Atlanta institution along with Blue Ridge Grill and Bone Steakhouse. During a peaceful Black Lives Matter march that was going past OK Cafe, a few weeks ago in response, there was a giant banner that read, Lives that matter are made with positive purpose. The backlash to the owners of the cafe for putting up this cryptic banner was immediate. Owner Susan DeRose had issued multiple statements justifying her position, which led to many people boycotting all of her restaurants. The open letter and the article is linked in the show notes, but to sum it up, I'll quote Yandalela with this one sentence. The crux of your letter is that Black people should be thankful and should give a shout out to America for the crumbs that we have received while white society as a collective continues to eat cake. Wow. I've been following the story, and when I read Yandalela's response, I recognized the personal and professional risk she took and also understood her intelligently breaking down Mr. Rose's actions. I knew I had to speak to her and understand, and I was really touched by our conversation. I saw her as a deeply caring mother, an empowered and concerned citizen, and someone who is driven by her desire for justice and helping clear a path for others to rise where it might have been too difficult before. And before we get into our chat, I need to tell you about my podcast course that just started this week. It is not too late to get it, get in and get all the guidance you need to get your own messages out to the world. So if you've been considering starting your own podcast or thinking about what is your next move? What can you do that's going to make an impact? Might I invite you to Press Play Podcast. It is a six-week interactive collaborative course where every step of the way is handled or at least guided for you where you can bring your ideas to life. So you can go to allisonhair.com forward slash press play. 
Also, if this is your first time listening, welcome. If you're returning, welcome back. It means so much to me. And my promise to you is that every conversation will be thought-provoking and perhaps allow you to see things in a new way. I truly hope you'll subscribe to this podcast so you never miss a perspective-shifting episode. Rate and leave a review on your favorite listening platform. I read every word and your insight helps me make a better show for you. I will say that I've got some unbelievable guests coming up, not just Seth Godin, but some really, really big, important names. I've been securing some really exciting people and cannot wait to bring them to you. Okay, here is my chat with Yandalela Neely Holston. So we are here with Yandalela Neely Holston. She is a partner and a chief diversity officer at Kilpatrick Stockton Law Firm. It is, uh, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's an AM Law 75, right? That's a very good question. <laughs> I, it's definitely one of the top <laughs> 100 not law firms. Yes, it's a very large law firm. I know we're in the top 500. <laughs> um, uh, we're national and international. And so Kilpatrick Stockton actually merged with Townsend Townsend and Crew in 2011. So now we're Kilpatrick Townsend and Stockton. Oh, all right. Okay. And you had penned an open letter in response to Susan DeRose, who is one of the owners of OK Cafe, which is, uh, I think it's called the Liberty Group. It's a group mm-hmm. of restaurants that owns, they're really, really big in Atlanta. They are landmarks in Atlanta of OK Cafe, Blue Ridge Grill, and Bones. And so they have been around for a long time. And during the protest of Black Lives Matter, which were peaceful. Okay, Cafe had put up a banner that said, lives, wait, what is it? Lives that matter are made with positive purpose. And in response to the protest, so there was a lot of backlash to it. And at the time before that, maybe, I don't know if it was like maybe a few days or a week before that, there was some looting, there was some rioting. I don't know if it was an organized effort that was separate from Black Lives Matter or that. And so you penned an open letter. And one of the things that you had said was to intentionally try to antagonize a peaceful march, the purpose of which you seek justice, shows that you do not want peace. You want the status quo. And that, Ms. DeRose, is simply not acceptable. Uh, You wrote this incredible letter. And I'm thinking, my goodness, you are a partner and a C-level executive of a huge law firm, there is great personal risk and even professional risk by writing a letter so openly, so bold to challenge somebody who is fighting for the status quo. And to your estimation, in my own personal estimation, minimizing the lives of Black people who have been oppressed for hundreds of years. Why you? Why did you write that letter? I didn't feel like I could sit silently. So there have been many instances over history, over the, our recent history, where you see injustice and you sit on the sidelines silently and you shake your head and you say, that's not right. But you say it to yourself or you say it to your immediate group and the injustices continue. And this one just kept sitting with me. And it was because she had been so vocal in her position 
And hers is the only one you got to hear. And hers is wrong and hers is oppressive and hers is antiquated. And you can see my open letter came at least like a week and some days afterwards because I was hoping the feeling of having to say something (laughs) would dissipate and that I wouldn't feel it. But I felt it heavy on my heart and my conscience that something had to be said and that I had to say it. Like, if not you, then who Um, is basically how I felt about it. And so I had some things to say to her. And so I penned an open letter in response. And it was in the hopes that she might listen, but more so that those around would listen. I I wasn't optimistic that she would be receptive. And then her response, (laughs) doubling down, um, confirmed my thoughts. But alternative view needed to be articulated in a way that refocused the message because she focused on small businesses. She focused on looting, neither of which were the actual intent of her sign, nor are they, to me, the primary problem or the primary issue. And I think that's how we continue to not address things over history is that we reframe them in ways that are convenient and minimize what the real issue is. With that, there are a lot of systemic issues. And I think about there are people in my family that I don't feel are overtly racist, but they are Mm -hmm. positioning their positions around, but what about the small businesses? What about, and I'm like, no, you don't, you don't understand. And so there's kind of a limited view versus Mm -hmm. the macros. So what was the response like? Because I'm, I, I looked at the comments and there were so many in support of you. And then there mm-hmm. were so many that are like, I'm going to keep going to OK Cafe. Mm-hmm. They're, they're right. So tell me about the response. So I didn't read the comments. I watch enough reality TV to know that you don't read the comments. That's what all the <laughs> reality stars say. You're like, you don't read what people say about you. People reached out to me as a person in a law firm or a practicing lawyer. I am easy to find. So a number of people reached out to me and the overwhelming majority were supportive. My firm was supportive. So you said, you mentioned my uh, career I didn't run it by anybody. Like I sent the letter from my Gmail account. I didn't mention where I worked. Oh, wow. (laughs) I was wondering if you took a position from your professional standpoint, because it's been all over that chief diversity (laughs) officer and partner of Kilpatrick Stockton. So he Googled me. Or Kilpatrick Townsend. He rightly did his research before um, running the article. And I found out actually when one of my partners, a woman who'd recently made partner, sent me the link and said, I just saw this. It's amazing. And I was like, you just saw what? Oh my God. Like, I got stepped <laughs> away. Like, it was in the middle of the workday. I hadn't checked Gmail. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. And so I immediately reached out to our PR people because of course it's a large law firm. You have a PR team yeah, to let them know. And they were supportive. And then the chair of our firm is a, a mentor and friend. And so I reached out to him as well to let him know I had not sent it for my work account. I had not mentioned the Kilpatrick, nonetheless, this is the article. And so you need to know what's out there in case you hear or get backlash. And so he has not, that the last check-in, because I told him, I was like, everything I've heard has been good. So that means you're getting all the bad stuff. And he said he had not at that point received any bad. Most of our clients, also our big clients, have issued public statements in support of Black Lives Matter. So it meshed with the firm and our public statement because the firm had also given a, uh, that we unequivocally stand in support of racial justice and equality. And so it worked out. But... That must have felt really good, though. That must have felt really gratifying because what you did was very bold. And it sounds like it was driven from somewhere 
pretty deep inside where you couldn't mm-hmm. stay silent anymore. And so I'm wondering, what is your call to action for people that are going to continue to stand up? So mm-hmm. so there's a movement right now where there's no way that we're going back. There's mm-hmm. no way we can go back. Like, I, I don't know if you feel like this is a tipping point, mm-hmm. but it sure feels like it. It feels like it's never been this this uh, on such a global front Mm -hmm. that this is front and center. What are your thoughts on it? I pray it's a tipping point, but we've been witness to the killings before. And then even the Black Lives Matter movement started in response to Michael Brown Mm -hmm. and there were protests and then Nothing happened. And then we have all these other names that we can add to the list. And I quite literally cried myself to sleep last night thinking about Elijah McClain. Yes. I have a seven-year-old son. My seven, like I have a seven-year-old. He is black, he is male, and he is autistic. And I have always cried thinking about that even before I had an Elijah McClain to compare him to, to know that he doesn't respond to authority and see um, demands and commands the same way as everyone else. And if mm. he is in the right, he is going to articulate. And as Elijah McClain shows us, you can be dead right. He is. He was literally right, and now he is dead. And so I cry myself to sleep thinking about wishing that one day my son isn't dead right because he's an autistic Black male. Like, he loves cats. He loves music. He could have so been playing violins to kittens. Like, everything about Elijah McClain I see in my child and know that that was someone else's child. And I've seen it in other people and you try to rationalize it away, but these are individuals and, and, and but our greater community goes to sleep with these burdens daily. And so I pray as a tipping point, but having seen us as a collective society continually go back to sleep, I, I don't want to say no, but I really pray that yes, yes, this is a tipping point. Yes, this is a place where we will change. But I don't think we're going to change if everybody goes back to normal. If everybody, after the next headline, we decide to focus on something else. And so now we're still talking about it, but that's only, we, we've we had new issues to recenter us. But at some like point- Like Richard are, Brooks and Elijah McClain, which happened a year ago. Right. It was you know? what, August 2019? August, September 2019? Yeah. We keep, like, names keep coming up, which recenters us, but I'm worried that people will become comfortable because regardless of whatever our statuses are in society, most people have gotten to a comfort at living at whatever that status is, or you wouldn't be able to focus in everyday life. So whether it's in, like, a one-bedroom house with 10 people or a mansion with two, you have gotten okay with that because imagine what your psyche would be if you weren't okay with it and you were, you couldn't find some peace and happiness in that situation every day. And I'm concerned and worried that we will all go back to our peace and happiness and that we'll stop fighting. For me, the need to fight and object has always been a driving focus. It's actually the reason I left my very nice in-house job to come back to the firm to be the chief diversity and inclusion officer. But I've been feeling in recent times that even that's not enough and Mm -hmm. I need to do more and I want to be more impactful. And so you then find yourself between racism is so deep and so wide that how do you attack it? And so your move to inaction from just the scope or your move to inaction from your lack of comfort, but in action in either 
regardless of how you move there, is unacceptable because it's not going to promote change. Have you seen people in response to your letter or even people in general say, you know what? I feel like I have been, I, I have wronged you in some way. Do you feel like there has been a shift in understanding? People have expressed support. People have said, oh, well, what can I do? And well, I'm just one person or I don't do anything. And so I think anti-racism is really the key. And so not overtly doing something yourself that is racist isn't enough because right. we all function and live within a racist society. So doing nothing, you're perpetuating racism, period. Mm -hmm. So unless you are actively working against it, you're perpetuating it. So I think we all just need to own up to it and say we are all actively working toward racism when we're not actively working against it. But I don't think people want to accept that. I don't. I think it's hard to accept that there may be things that you have in life that you just didn't earn, um, that you were gifted with. And so that kind of doesn't mesh with how the American pull yourself up by your bootstraps, everything I have, I earned, I work for, I deserve. And that's not the case. I'm currently listening to Ibram Kendi's Stand yeah. From the Beginning on Spotify. And I have the book is coming, being delivered today too, but just going back through it. And one of the things he says in the prologue, which is so amazing, is that if you truly believe, whoever you are, if you truly believe that every person, regardless of their race, is created equal and is the same, then you have to admit or acknowledge that any racial disparities are the result of racial discrimination. Because if we're all equal, that means we have equal talent distributed amongst our races. We have equal abilities. And so if 13% of the population is Black and only 2% of the wealth is Black, that has to be the result of racial discrimination. Mm. because we're all equal and we all have abilities equally distributed. And so I think that sentence or that statement resonates so much with me because I don't think we've all subscribed to that because I think in our hearts, we all say, oh, well, it's 2% because those people worked harder or those people did X, Y, and Z or the, the remaining 98% didn't do it. So they didn't take advantage of this opportunity or they were lazy or they did whatever, whatever we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel good about the disparity in how the wealth is distributed or how mass incarceration rates look or any of that other stuff to try to put it on the person to say that somehow they earned it perpetuates racism and is racist in and of itself because that is not comport with everybody being equal and all characteristics being equally distributed amongst all people. Then you have, to, well, I'm thinking about Candace Owens who has really focused on, she is a, <laughs> that's how I feel about her too, but will not follow her, any of her accounts because mm -hmm. uh, I find it infuriating. But I've seen her grow from 1 million to 2 million followers mm -hmm. on Instagram in over this Black Lives Matter. And she is talking about George Floyd was a thug and mm -hmm. he uh, was a, a bad character and basically that he deserved it and white people need mm -hmm. to calm down and all of this stuff. And Dylan Ruth was so a murderer dangerous. and he's still alive. It's just so dangerous. You know, like I don't understand why are people fighting for the status quo? Because the status quo, so... Candace Owens, so you do not have to be white to be racist. Um, and Candace Owens is definitely racist. You just have to perpetuate racism, which she does. The problem with her and the people before her is that somehow because she's Black, 
her racism is viewed as it can't be. And so it's given a stamp of approval. And she is somehow the voice of all black people. But you would never accept Trump as the voice of all white people. So why is Candace Owens somehow the voice of all black people? Mm. But in any event, it's dangerous because also another plug for Stanford beginning, I do not know Ibram Kendi. Um, I did not get royalties from this book. But he also talks about like uh, Leo Africanus who perpetuated racism and was like one of the early people to do so. And he was black. But when a black voice says racist things, it's amplified to a whole nother level because it's like, see, you know, they're confirming everything we've been saying. So it can't be racist. It's got to be the truth. And no, it is 100% unequivocally racist. I don't care what George Floyd did. In this country, you get a trial, you get a jury, and you get sentenced. And passing a $20 counterfeit bill, if that's what he did, this is not death. This is not a country where the punishment for that is death. We look at Dylan Roof, who murdered nine people in cold blood. He is still alive. So Candace can do some things. Like I was about to say something that I probably didn't say. But you can you, let it fly like, here. <laughs> but you can't like I think that's an other issue. And what we one of the other things about systemic racism is that when it's a black person doing something, then that's what they do. Like so it's further support. Like George Floyd is everybody. And so any bad thing he did is everybody. And mm-hmm. then Dylan Ruth is just a bad apple. So he's not all white people don't go kill people. Yeah, It's just him. He was a bad apple. And so we take two different approaches to things. In addition, all his whole rap sheet, they didn't know any of that when they were killing him. They were just killing a black man. Right. And so going back and using his past to justify it isn't okay because he should have never been killed. All of that stuff could have come up in his trial if you had given him the luxury of one. He was like, we have people who are are dead because they're sleeping in their bed, dead because they're playing video games, dead because you happen to be a child at a park with a toy gun, dead because you had the audacity to walk home with Skittles in your pocket and not stop when the vigilante neighborhood police officer who was appointed by no one told you to stop and then got upset when you you were a child who beat his butt, dead because you were just walking home, like just dead, dead because you had the audacity to jog. All of these things, crimes and non-crimes, are, have been punished by death. And that is not okay. And anyone who tries to say that is okay should be checked out, quite frankly, because there's something wrong with you. But why we're okay with the status quo, I think, is because it works for us. So people have found a way to make it work for them, and no one wants to give it up. And to also not accept it, again, goes against the whole, I am where I am because of my hard work and effort, not because there were systems playing in for me or against me. And so it just goes against what we have come to believe and accept as the American entrepreneurial spirit. So I think that's why people are okay with the status quo. And that's what makes me less optimistic about change, although I still hold on to hope and I want to be a catalyst for it. And so that's why I wrote the letter in an effort to say, if you want to just do one thing, one thing you can do is this is racism and I'm not going to support it. Yeah. And I'm curious, you are a incredibly esteemed and accomplished attorney. Why did you go into law? That's another racist story. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, When So I kind of wanted to be a lawyer for most of my life. But then I was in governor's school between my 
junior year and senior year in high school. And I happened to just pick the psychology track for governor's school. And then I watched the pre-law students and how they never had time to hang out with us and how they were always like in the library and decided, you know what? I don't really want that for the rest of my life. (laughs) So I decided that, you know, made that decision that I didn't want to be a lawyer. And so I go into undergrad thinking psychology or marketing, any number of things that Mm. aren't law. And then the May of my sophomore year at the school, Fermi University, we were on a trimester system at the time. So we didn't get out of school until June when most people were out of getting out of school um, around Mother's Day. And so at Mother's Day weekend, when most other people were graduating, we had this tradition called Beach Weekend where everyone would go to Myrtle Beach and just release steam because we would come back and go into finals. And so my very first beach weekend, we get there, we decide we're hungry as soon as we get to the hotel and we go grab food. We walk into a pizza place and the line was long and it's like, you can get pizza anywhere. I'm still a college student, but I want some seafood. And there was a seafood restaurant next door. So we go into the seafood restaurant. One of my friends, here's the owner of the pizza shop, say, I wouldn't do that if I was you. She Mm. stays. Nobody else stays in there with her. We go to the seafood restaurant because we didn't hear that statement. So we go there. They are like huffing and puffing at us, um, mumbling under their breaths. They take forever to take our orders. And then we're mumbling, well, you're not going to eat here. And why are you here? And all these things that we just weren't processing. Like I heard them say it, but I wasn't processing. I was excited. I was at the beach. I just wanted to grab some food, even if it was cheap seafood, and go. And so... We like snatching money out of your hands. It was very, in hindsight, overtly aggressive. Mm. When we finally sit down, we look around and realize that there's no other Black people in this restaurant and that the white people are steady leaving. And so when the last white person left, which was a couple, an older man and a woman, as soon as they left, the owner of the restaurant came and said, get out. You're not welcome here. You can't eat here. Some Mm. of us didn't even have our food yet. We had all paid because it was one like a, think of like a Long John Silver's, although it wasn't Mm because it was a mom and pop. But we had all paid and we were waiting for our food. Get out. You can't eat here. You're not welcome here. This is 2 p.m. in the afternoon. We go outside and what we try to say, no, we still want our food. What are you talking about? We paid. We all indicated we were eating in when they asked how you were going to eat in. Like, where were you going to, was it to go or in dining? And we were like in dining and one guy was like, no, it's not. One of the um, servers. But we didn't all have our food. And he's like, get out. Get out. I'm calling the police. And so we got out because it's a group of black kids. You know, you don't want the police to come. And so we stand outside and we look at the the time and the time. We knew it was two o'clock and we were like, well, do they close in the middle of the afternoon or something? No, they're supposed to be open till nine. As soon as we go out, they lock the door behind us. And he did, in fact. He had called the police. And so we're out there trying to group and figure out, upset because people have food that they pay for. That Like, you didn't give us our money back. So, like, you literally made us pay for you to be racist to us and discriminate against us. And the cop comes up, and it's a, a white cop, and he was just like, quit causing trouble and move along. And so we understand the dynamic. We're not all going to talk to him. So we had appointed a spokesperson who was trying to tell him we ordered food. They wouldn't give it to us. They kicked us out. We weren't causing any trouble. And he was like, I don't care. Quit causing trouble and move along. And so he reinforced what they did. And so then we went back to the pizza place because we had to go get our friend stunned about how blatant, like it literally just happened to us. And this is 2001. And she was like, yeah, didn't you hear the guy tell you not to go over there? And we were like, no. 
She's like, he said, I wouldn't do that if I was you. That's why I stayed here. And he came out and he was so nice and he gave us free pizzas and apologized and says he sees it happen all the time. And that's why he tried to warn us. But they're notorious for it and everybody knows. And I was like, yeah, except if you're not from Myrtle Beach. But I was so upset and I came home knowing because I was like, I may be a sophomore in college, but I do know that you can't not serve a person because of their race. Like, I don't know which law it is, but I do know it's a law. And so not only did the restaurant break the law, the police reinforced their breaking of the law and made us move along when we were actually the ones following the law. And so talked to a few lawyers, tried to find somebody. They were like, well, the claim doesn't worth anything. You didn't get beat. Like nothing major happened to you other than, you know, like your spirit being defeated. The bar is so low. You didn't get beat. Yeah. And so like they were like, there's basically nothing you can do about it but be upset and never eat there again. And that just wasn't okay with me. So then I decided I wanted to go into law because it didn't, I wasn't okay with that type of situation. And so, I mean, I'm in it now and I know they're right. Like that would just be one of those battles that you would pay tons of money to fight, but you wouldn't recover very much. You know what I'm saying? Like they're not going to really suffer. And so there isn't much teeth to it. But at the time I was just a college sophomore who was infuriated that I witnessed people break the law and I wanted to go to law school to do something about it. So you switched to law school and then what happens from there? Because you are a Furman grad and then a Duke mm-hmm. Duke law, which is mm-hmm. like ridiculous hard to get into no matter what color, no matter what race you are and, and uh, really, really hard. So what was that like? You're obviously a chief diversity and inclusion officer. This is something that is so deeply embedded and baked into who you are. Tell me about your journey from there. From there, from the incident at Myrtle Beach, I came back to school and got a internship with the public defender. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do law. Let me check this out. And so I did intern with the public defender, still very much believe in the work they do, but was not, I didn't feel that I could give the quality of legal services that I wanted to be able to give it with the resources that I provided to the public defender. So please fund public defenders. And so came back to school and the next summer did civil rights law. So did plaintiff's uh, side civil rights law. And in that instance, the owner, like it was a one-man shop. It was a white guy. He had helped um, fight the uh, Maurice Barbecue. So it's Maurice's Barbecue in South Carolina and some other major civil rights issues in South Carolina. So I got to work with him, which was awesome. And one day, like he's like, we're taking on this reverse race discrimination case. So the client will be white and he's arguing that he was fired from his job because he was white. And I looked at him like, in South Carolina? Yeah, right. <laughs> but okay, we've taken on this case. I'm just a student. And I had to do the intake. And so I'm talking to our client And he was like, well, you know how those people are and those people do such and such. And Mm -hmm. they only did this. And so I write his affidavit up. I go talk to the attorney whose firm it is and was like, so how do we end up with this case again? Because I just listened to the plan talk to me about those people. It seems like he's the racist and not the result of racism. And so he's like, well, you can't judge the client as they come in and you have to take them as they come and based on the subject story, blah, blah, blah. Turns out, actually, he was writing N-word all over the bathroom and doing all kind of other stuff. So he deserved to be fired. It was a vile person and came in to sign his declaration that I had drafted. And I was like, hi, I'm Yandalela. The person took your statement. You know, one of those people that you talk to on the phone. So his face kind of fell. But that also kind of recentered me, too, that all civil rights work doesn't 
fight for what I want either. So that kind of shaped me going into law school. And so I went to Duke, was qualified to go to Duke. I, um, one of my professors was a Duke grad and was really pushing me toward Duke law school because I didn't have, like my sister was, had just gone through the process. I didn't really have anyone to go to because we were the first to do professional school in our family. So I didn't have any guiding light. So I just relied on my professors at Furman. And so one's father had graduated from Cornell Law. So she was pushing that one. And one of my professors had graduated from Duke Law. So he's pushing that one. And everybody else was basically a crapshoot. And Wake Forest told me that I should be excited that I got in because they didn't even know my sister was my sister. And so I was like, you lose. I'm not a little sister. Um, (laughs) So it was between the two of them. And finally for Duke, the day before you had to make a decision, the my professor, Dr. AC, walked into the library. So I had five jobs in undergrad, and one of them was at the circulation desk in the library. And so he walks in while I'm working and asks me how the search is going. And I was like, well, I think I'm going to Cornell because I got a good scholarship package there. And he's like, well, what about Duke? I haven't heard from Duke. He's like, well, that's unacceptable. Drive up there and tell them that they are making a huge mistake and this is how much you want. And if they know what's good for them, they'll let you in. And I was like, not um, going to happen. He was like, no, tomorrow you don't go to class. You drive up to Durham and you tell them. And so, and he's a very animated little man. Yeah. And so I call my mom <laughs> and we drive up to Durham and I follow the AC script. And the dean, Dean Shields at the time says, how much money would it take for you to say you're coming to Duke? And so it was like, you see on TV, I wrote a number on the table and slide it to him. And he's like, if I say <laughs> that you have this much money, will you sign now? And this conversation's over. And I was like, yes. So he's like, you have this much money. So I signed and I was officially going to Duke and I drove back to um, South Carolina. And so I went to Duke law school. I hate law school. Um, I don't (laughs) think it's specific to Duke. I just think it's specific to law school. It's not a fun process, but came out with some honors and went to Kilpatrick. It's amazing. One of my best friends does placement for attorneys and she's an attorney herself. She also graduated from Duke. And I asked her about, you know, I talked about your credentials and asked about Kilpatrick Townsend. And I said, you know, when you're placing people, how important is it from a diversity perspective to place? She goes, it's gold. It is absolutely gold to have a diverse candidate placed but it's really, really hard. They're not as many. And so I wonder of your position in the diversity, uh, chief diversity and inclusion officer, what is your role? What is your, your hope and your goal? My ultimate goal is that we reassess what we consider in terms of recruiting. I consider myself a bit of an anomaly. So like, yeah, I'm an easy choice. Like I had great grades. Like I started Kilpatrick as a 1L. So I was the first 1L they hired in the Raleigh office. So I was at the beginning of their 1L summer program in Raleigh. So I've been with the firm my entire career. But again, like I'm to your point, like I'm easy to place. I had great undergrad grades. I have great law school grades. And that is a blessing in and of itself. And I have previously told Henry, I can't imagine where I would be if I had the same opportunities as other people. So I went to law school not knowing anything. I stumbled through and still graduated with honors. Like, I can't imagine if I had had a family member to talk to or some historical knowledge or knew what I was doing, like if I had walking into the door. And so I've actually created a pipeline program to make sure other students don't have that issue. And so we can talk about that. But like uh, what potential I could have reached 
if I hadn't had all the odds stacked against me. Because I think I did pretty good with the odds stacked against me. You blew me. everybody so, away. You blew everybody away. That's and so huge. I want to know. I was like, and so he was like, well, you can't live in the past. It's like, I know, but to think what I could have done if I hadn't spent the first couple semesters just figuring out how all of this even works. But I think changing how we look at that and realize that that's also part of the systemic issues is that it's not a lack of intellectual horsepower, it's not a lack of ability. It's because you're spending so much time just figuring out how this works. I don't, you don't have a cousin or an uncle or a family friend to call and help navigate through all of this stuff. And so that to me is one of the things I would love to see come out of um, my work. And, you know, it's, it's a slow process because this is very interesting law. It's not Kilpatrick specific, but re- reassessing what we, what makes a good candidate. Is it really your grades? Because I think if we look around, a lot of you guys didn't have that great of grades either. Or is it more so certain skill sets, certain abilities that we can test another way? Yes, Duke is a great school and taught me how to think, but maybe we consider other schools too. So maybe you can have a C at Duke, but you have to have a 4.0 at some other school. Like we need to reassess it because grades have been shown to not be a predictor of Mm -hmm. success but we continue to rely on them. And your school isn't necessarily a predictive success. Like I, before I had this role and the first time I made partner, I told, I would tell people, like, look around at the make of the partnership. The black partners at the firm, we have Ivy League law degrees. That is not uniform for all the partners at the mm-hmm. firm. And so why is it that, you know, you had to have, we had to have an Ivy League degree to get to that point. And so that just kind of shows how we have to be a little harder. We have to work a little differently. And so mm-hmm. you have people explaining off, oh, well, they went to X, Y, Z law school, but I know their parent and their parents are good clients, so we're going to hire them. So we make concessions for other people and don't think twice about it. But when it comes to diversifying the workforce, we take it differently and don't consider everything else. And I would like to see us broaden what we consider in terms of what makes a person qualified and where we're looking to get the candidates in the first place and not do it because we're diversity hiring. Because yeah. I think that's, I, I think the that's affirmative action thing has become very pejorative too. the yeah. affirmative action. Right. And it's like the affirmative action is because your regular action was racist. Like you're probably not being racist. That's like, it's so annoying. But to take that approach was like, oh, it's a diversity hire. And somehow you're, you're stamped as being less than. I'm not. I can guarantee you. And so you're not you're not going to the dredges of society and pulling someone up. You're giving a person that you were overlooking a chance. And I can guarantee you they're going to do good, but they're not less qualified than the other person. Because just because the other person got into whatever school, maybe on their qualifications or maybe because their parents were legacy, doesn't make them more qualified. I work for Salesforce and Salesforce also has a chief diversity and inclusion officer. And one of the things that have been imbalanced in some ways and through the Black Lives Matter, we have a lot of, we have a lot, a lot, a lot of internal education and enablement around anti-racism. We've had Ibram Kendi speak with us as a company And they are now going into HBC colleges and specifically changing the practices of hiring and enablement throughout to make sure that we are a little more equitable. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I love, at least from what I'm seeing, it seems like there are more real concrete actions being taken. And I wonder if continuing to do that, I'm sure you probably are involved with some mentor programs or some type of, like you kind of have to dismantle the status quo and rebuild all over the place. And I wonder what that looks like in your world and you know, from, from your standpoint, from your seat. Um, so one of the things that I actually started even before I came back to the firm was a pipeline program. And so we're doing it on two coasts with two of our largest clients. And the program is a law school readiness class, and it's for individuals historically underrepresented in the law. And so in this, it's now virtual this year, but in this previously in-person two and a half day conference, it had a couple of things, but you take a law school class, like you sit in what would really be a law school class, typically in a subject matter that's harder to grasp. So contracts and property are two of the harder ones to grasp, especially if you don't have a family history or background that would ground you in that. Like if you don't have family that had land that was buying and selling or that's got significant contracts, there's nothing in your normal everyday experience for you to tie the concepts in those two classes for. So we've done property for the first two years and now contracts the second two years. But you have that, you have an essay, like you have to respond to a law school exam. So we give you an exam to answer overnight and then it's graded and you're given feedback on it before you've had anything before you set school, the foot into law school, a legal writing like primer, and then having you write a memo that we also grade and provide you feedback on, how to network, certain things that you need to know about how to spend your time, like which organizations are worthwhile and which ones are not. For example, if you look on my bio, it says that I was on the Duke Law and Contemporary Policies Journal. Well, I was. But when I tried to write onto journal, there were certain things about the note that I didn't even understand. Like I didn't even know how to change word to make hyperscript and subscript and had no one to ask. Duke has a policy that, the top, well, at least when I was there, they expect the top 10% of this, the students in the top 10% GPA-wise to be on a journal. And if you're not on a journal, they will put you on a journal. It's called grading on. So I happened to grade on to journal. But I was unable to write on because I didn't understand the the system. So like yeah. I just kind of ended up there where I needed to be because being on journal is a pretty big deal. So we talked to them about journal, all this stuff. We even have a course. I'm like, these are all the terms like journal that you're going to hear that you will have never heard of before. And nobody's going to sit down and explain it to you. And so all of that stuff so that you walk in a little more prepared than you otherwise would have. So. I, I literally created thinking, what did I wish I had known walking into the mm. doors of Duke that I didn't, that I think could have better prepared me to succeed? And so trying to give that to other students so that they don't flounder. And also, more importantly, in the in-person, they have a lot of networking opportunities with lawyers. And I, everybody involved in the program wants to see them succeed. And so you have some resources that you can reach out to once you're in law school and once you have questions so that you, you're you not, again, on your own, um, which I think has been very valuable. I've had former um, scholars reach out to say, when I'm like, hey, I really want to work for the DA in this county. She was in Florida. And she was like, and I keep calling and they're not responding to my calls. I just really need to know what the application deadline is and blah, blah, blah. Do you know anybody? Yes. Forwarded along. She had an interview before the end of the day. Mm. One of my other scholars reached out because he was going into JAG. And so Georgia had pushed back the swearing in date and he needed to be sworn into the bar and the new date wouldn't allow him to 
get his materials in for his JAG appearance date. What so, does JAG mean? Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you got to dumb it down like for me. The, is it the Judicial Army Corps? It's the, the lawyers for the military. Okay. Um, and so he was for the Navy, so the military lawyers. And so he had to appear in January and so reached out to a few judges in town and the one I, one of them said, I can't help, but I know another judge who's holding a special swearing-in ceremony this Friday if your friend can get everything done, like your mentee can get everything done. So then he sent it, and I'm in another state, but like I signed for him to be sworn in, and then I have one of my friends sign because you have to have two people to sign on your um, your admission packet. And so he gets sworn in within three days of reaching out saying, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to be able to sworn in this morning I'm not going to appear. So like those types of things, because I think about like, if I had been in a position, I would not have had any of these resources. So we try to be a resource for the students too, as they go throughout their careers. It sounds like you're changing a lot of processes and that's super helpful. What have you seen over the past few years or whatever that has given you hope for change and that you feel like if we could continue to do more of that, it'll make Mm -hmm. a difference? So that's a good question. I don't know because so the good thing about the firm is that I feel as if this has been something that's been on Kilpatrick's radar for a while. And so that's where my bubble lies. You feel supported um, there. Yeah. Yeah. And it ha- yeah. and so I know the firm has a very long history in it and it's continuing in that way. I think what gives me hope is how uh, diversity and increasing diversity in the profession isn't something that you have to argue for anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think now people just accept it's needed. The challenge is they don't understand why. And so they kind of also put a stamp on the people. But are they, they say it in theory, so it's needed, we'll hire them, but they don't give you the support you need once you're there, which I think is our next obstacle. But I think the fact that there is like it's a given, it's accepted. Like you're not out here trying to convince people that we need diversity in the legal profession anymore. Now we're at how do we achieve it? And so just moving from the having to convince, I think is a positive step. Yeah, I agree. So what do you know that you wish other people could know? So in general life, my parents did a great job making sure that the history that we heard was not just the history we learned in school. Tell me more about that. So they were very intentional in knowing that we got a very biased view of history in school. They were very intentional in knowing us knowing Black history. Was it whitewashed, um, do you think? The oh, history? I, yeah. I think history in school definitely is. Again, yeah. we still like, look at how we talk about Columbus. Our kids still learn that he sailed the ocean blue and that he discovered something. Like Native Americans were here. Like we don't talk about the fact that Native Americans weren't even allowed to be citizens of the country and the land that they like Mm -hmm. owned. So it was taken from them. And then what was it? It was like the 60s. It was crazy recently. They were even allowed to be citizens. Citizens. Like that is insane to me. So yes, history is definitely whitewashed. And so I would love to see history tell a balanced perspective of everybody's voices. And so I know why it doesn't because there's a lot of racism in history. And so the people telling the story are not going to tell about their racism. And so I understand why it's not there. But my parents were very intentional in making sure that we got a more holistic picture of history and that we understood what wasn't true and what we were being taught in school. And so I wish that more people would take the time to like listen to and learn the actual history 
of this country. Like I even think about all the people who are arguing that the Confederate flag and these Confederate monuments are history, not hate. No, they're hate. Like if you actually knew the history of them, you would know that they were hate. You would know that they went away and then they came back in two major waves, Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement, because they the monuments and the flag were both intended to oppress people and to remind them of their social position and their position in the racial hierarchy. That is 100 percent hate. It yeah, is they not were history. put up as a middle finger to black people they in were. civil wars, in the civil war. Um, yeah, the civil so, war. Like not even the civil war. Like, civil, so rights, you, civil rights. Yeah, civil during rights. civil yes. rights and during Reconstruction, like are two big times where these things yeah. happened. And so that's a hundred percent hate. That's not history. And history is in museums. History is not at your state capitol. Mm-hmm. So, like, no, I wish people would take the time and learn. But I mean, I think they prefer ignorance. And so it makes you more comfortable. But I wish people would take that time to learn that. It's really hard. It's something that for me is personal because like I said, I have people in my family that are saying about keeping the monuments and I don't think they are overtly racist. I don't think they're seeing the full picture. You know what I mean? They're much older. And, you know, like, I don't know how to fight it. Like I tried and just, you know, got hung up on. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And uh, it, it, it it's it's really hard to figure out how to undo and dismantle some of some of those teachings and, you know, understand it from a different point of view. But, and I think like what I would say in my family is like, even the fact that you're hanging up on me or choosing not to listen shows your privilege. Yes. Because you can choose to view them as history because you have that benefit because they were never used to oppress you. And like, we don't see statues of Hitler or any other Nazis throughout Germany. So why do we see statues to the Confederacy? Like these were treasonous individuals who lost, mind you. So when have we ever celebrated the losers, our treason? Like those are two things that are supposed to be like a no here. We don't celebrate treason. We don't celebrate losers. Here we're celebrating both. It seems to me though that it is, again, dependent on the narrow source of news that they're getting. And, you know, from a media perspective, I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, the media, the media's design is to hype stuff and to kind of sit on a position. I wish it was a little more balanced, but it's really hard to find balanced information. And for me, I feel like a lot of times the answer is in the middle, but it's hard to undo that. And I think representation matters. I think that from a cultural perspective in our media and entertainment, you see a lot more colors. You see a lot more races. You see even in in our entertainment and from like a Hollywood perspective, there's a lot more representation of the Indian culture and Asian culture and Black culture and mixing of that, mm-hmm. which to me, I think is positive, but it's not enough. And I'm I'm really disappointed to see some people fighting for stuff that really doesn't affect them. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't personally affect you. It is the privilege of it not affecting you. And so from your perspective, it's clear from our conversation today that you are driven by something that irritates and gnaws at you every single day. And I I think about you crying yourself to sleep last night over, you know, the protection of not only your son, but Black boys, Black children everywhere that I'm hopeful can grow up in a little bit of a different world or a little more 
balance world that you are paving for them. So what is next for you? What is on your roadmap? I don't know. Everything else has been kind of haphazard. <laughs> um, so I feel like the next one will appear. So just as the letter was sitting on my soul as something that had to be done, I suspect that God will let me know what's next when it's time to do it. <laughs> do you feel, are you glad that you did it? Did you, were you scared? Um, what did it feel oh like even writing that? Yeah. So I, like I said, I, I didn't do it for like a week and a half. And then I was like praying a lot before writing it and then shaking a lot, writing it and then praying and shaking, shaking from anxiety, not from anger. Like, yeah, from, yeah, I get it. Like uh, you need to do something. You feel it in your body. That no, like racism is real and people are crazy mm-hmm. and I can be found. Um, so it's that, that like, okay, you're going to speak up and make yourself known. And I mean, I grew up in a town, like I grew up in the home of the world's only clan museum. Like I remember very clearly at like 12. Is it still there? Being, no, no. Like the building's still there, but I don't think people actually go in and out now. Right. Um, but you know, it was erected in the 90s. Like there's a movie about it that came out this year with Usher in it called Burden. Yeah. Ridiculous. Burden. But I remember at like 12 going to the grocery store and having to stop because the clan was marching and like looking out and seeing them be like face to face. So this was, I'm not very old. This is kind of how I grew up. So I am very aware of the activity and the activeness. And so, and also how bold people are even these days where they'll do it on camera. So it was more of that kind of shaking, like, okay, you have to do this, but there could be repercussions, but you have to do it. Like you're feeling called and led to it. So you can't not do it. So it was that kind of anxiety. So it was anxiety when writing it, anxiety. So I had it for, like I had written it a few days before I sent it out to anybody. So like, cause it was all kind of nervous anxiety. And then when somebody sent me the headline, I felt the wave come through again. So it's been a ball of knots since then, but everything's been fine. Um, and my neighbors are like paying attention and on alert. And so all of my family members are, but it was that kind of anxiety. But I wonder if it would encourage you to, I mean, it was such a bold move and it sounds like it came from a place of very, very deep, like you could not write it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm so glad that you did. I think your voice matters and I think it makes a difference too. I think it puts some perspective on some positions that maybe people hadn't thought through, even from an empathetic perspective. And I'm so glad that you are a culture changer in that and hope that you continue to do that. With that, I thank you so much for spending some time and sharing the stories. I think it's important. Thank you for having me and thank you for your series too, for um, all of your culture changers. It's my pleasure. (laughs) I have such great respect and honor for bold, courageous women like Yondalele Neely Holston. I hope her example sparks something in you to stand up for what's right and push back on the status quo when it's no longer acceptable. As for Culture Changers podcast, please share this episode with your friends. Of course, I hope you subscribe, rate, and review. It means so much to me. But the real measure of a great podcast are the ones that are shared. So please think of two or three people that would really get a lot out of this conversation and share it up. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.